Revelation, the grand finale of the long and winding biblical narrative. So what's it actually talking about? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. In our last episode, we opened up the conversation on different types of writing in the Bible with a look at apocalyptic literature. We explored how this kind of writing came about and the purpose it served in Israel's real historical moments, then used a sample passage from the book of Daniel to look at how apocalypse kind of unveils the deeper spiritual realities behind the current events in the ancient world. We didn't have enough time to fit it all in one episode, to, so today we're going to be taking a closer look at the book of Revelation, whose actual title is Apocalypse. So yeah, it definitely belongs in the apocalyptic group. My experience personally with, with Revelation is, like I said, that it's supposed to be this big grand finale to the Bible story, but I open it up and I start reading it, and I'm usually left just scratching my head about what in the world is actually going on. So. Today, we're going to start to unpack some of that, but first, a little review of what we went over last time. Yeah, that's good, Alex, and I don't think you're alone in terms of uh, people wishing that there had been some other clearer, you know, finale like, yay, God, you know, let's go or something like that. Right. But uh, that was that was not the choice, and so the Bible continues to surprise and, and amaze. But I think we did discover last time that this genre of writing, this apocalyptic writing was was born in a time of intense distress, you know, within Israel. And I think if we, you know, really want to fully understand the New Testament and especially Revelation, you know, we have to understand the real deplorable state that Israel and uh, the new church were in. Israel obviously had been a, a former world power, but it had been knocked off of its high horse and it's in the mud and in the blood and being trounced on. Uh, the Maccabeans had revolted and it was a terrible decision. And so now Rome was on full alert and Rome really does have a chokehold on the nation of Israel, just allowing it you know, enough breath to stay alive. And all of this flies in the face of the vision that Jewish people had grown up with which was that God had uniquely chosen Abraham's family, grown it into a great nation with a unique mission. And so now this huge question on the table is, why is God allowing these evil empires to thrive and damage his people and damage the mission? Is this just a pipe dream? And is God going to intervene? Is God going to come down on behalf of Israel for the sake of the world? So. This new kind of literature in the Bible is definitely still part of the story. It's an extension of the story of, of God and Israel culminating in Jesus. But this writing, you know, is genuinely different from anything that has come before. It's intense. It's urgent, you know, to go along with the times. And, you know, as we mentioned previously, there are common features like heavenly visitors and reports of visions. This, you know, very vivid symbolism, and we're going to take a look at, you know, a scene today, you know, of a woman who is in the final stages of birth. She's in deep agony, and, you know, as though that's not enough, 
this hideous red dragon appears and it's poised in front of the woman to devour the baby when it's born. I mean, this is amazing symbolism. This is not bedtime reading for your kids. And so it's a dense book. There's frequent use of numerology. There's these devastating cosmic judgments and, you know, frequent uh, pseudonymity. So the authors sometimes change out their names and we'll find all of these same themes that we saw in Daniel, you know, in the book of Revelation as well. Yeah. So that vision in Daniel 7 that we looked at last time, um, one thing we said that reveals to us is that Apocalyptic literature is, first of all, about the historical crisis that God's people were facing at that time. So the four vicious beasts representing four nasty empires in the ancient Near East would have been easily identifiable for the original audience. And the victorious coming of one like a son of man, as Daniel put it, would have given them real hope for God's future action. So we concluded last time that apocalyptic visions gave the people something to hang on to in highly stressful times. God knew what was happening in the world and he was working. The tangible consequences of his judgments were felt on earth and the time of his restoration and renewal was coming. And then finally, we pointed out that even within the story of the Bible itself, we see how these apocalyptic visions could speak to generations that came after the original audience. So apocalyptic reveals deeper patterns of rebellion and pride in human empires. So later audiences can find help and insight in these wild and weird symbols and stories. That is, so long as they are interpreted according to the regular conventions of apocalyptic literature itself, and that that's not lost. So we see Jesus using images and phrases from the earlier book of Daniel to describe what is happening in his own time and in Israel's near-term future. Uh, thanks, Glenn. I mean, this, this, this whole birth of a new literary genre, I, I think, is fascinating. And maybe we can just take a minute before we, uh. we, we move on here. But so this is, this is a, a kind of a new gift from the spirit, kind of the spirit being entrepreneurial, if you will. <laughs> and I, uh. you know, I think when we think of the spirit, you know, he usually in our minds, he, he works in then spiritual ways. He causes fruit to grow in the life of the believer and he gives guidance when we're reading his word and what have you. But this is the spirit um, in a different role, the spirit as something of an innovator. And so, uh, yeah, we were talking about this before the show, uh, Glenn, but you know, Talk about the fact that this this really was something otherworldly in the in the world of literature and that it, you know, it was unique. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because, you know, so much of the Bible and we're going to see that as we look at other kinds of literature in the Bible in upcoming episodes. So much of it has parallels in the wider ancient Near East. So wisdom literature, for example, which we'll look at next time, um, the, the other empires and cultures around Israel also had wisdom-type literature. They also had letter writing. We get that a lot in the first century um, in the Roman world. And history writing, right? So all the, the other kinds of um, writing we find in the Bible has parallels in pagan cultures. 
But apocalyptic is unique in this way that no other country or culture um, that I think we know of had apocalyptic kind of writing with this, with all the features that we mentioned of apocalyptic seems to have been a uniquely Jewish thing. And then the early Christian communities picked right up on it and they, they wrote apocalypses as well. And we have revelation within our Bible. So yeah, it's, it kind of stands out among all the biblical literature. And as you say, um, the spirit is using this kind of new way of writing and is behind it um, to describe um, the crisis that is kind of unique in Israel's history. I mean, everything is at stake. And so I think the point that uh, theologian Kevin Van Hooser made once that different kinds of writing in the Bible are fitting to different kinds of needs of the moment. And apocalyptic fit the need of the moment because it was a crisis of huge proportions, and the people are really wondering about the whole story being viable anymore. And so this new way of writing gets, uh, gets you know, comes up in Israel's literature, and then it becomes part of our Bible. So yeah, definitely the Spirit was at work in a unique way. Yeah, that's super interesting, and I think we mentioned it last time. There's not a ton of apocalypse in the Bible, right? No. But what's there right. is, is potent potent, I guess. So, yeah, um, yeah. so last time, you know, we talked about the book of Daniel this time, we're really going to focus on revelation in the new Testament. And there's a few hundred years between those two books between when they were written. So does revelation work exactly the same way as Daniel or are there some differences there? Hmm. Well, I would say yes and no. Uh, revelation is an apocalypse for sure. Um, but it also has some features of other kinds of writing. So it's a little more complicated than, say, Daniel. For example, the author named John, and we should just mention, it's not entirely clear which John this is, um, but we're not going to get into that right now. There's, there's kind of a discussion to be had there. But John addresses the book to seven specific churches in the Roman province of Asia, which is what we know as Western Turkey today. Naming such a specific audience is very unusual in apocalyptic literature. The other books don't really do that. Then John writes actual letters to each of those churches, which makes the whole book kind of a circular letter, which was meant to be read by one church and then passed on to the other one and moving around to all seven churches. There's also the fact that John himself calls his book a prophecy, meaning it's a true message from God. So I guess we could say Revelation is perhaps an adapted apocalypse, but the regular conventions of apocalyptic are definitely there once John starts describing his visions, which come right after the letters at the beginning of the book. Yeah, that's good, Glenn. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've, one of the points we've tried to make is that if, if we want to stay tethered to reality uh, in apocalyptic literature, we begin first and foremost with the idea that these writings were addressed to the current historical troubles of their day. And this is true of Revelation um, as well. Now the, the key danger are not the four beasts from Daniel, but a single beast, uh, if you will, um, which is squarely the Roman Empire. And it seems like uh, Revelation most likely was written late in the first century um, CE, probably during the reign of uh, the emperor Domitian. And, you know, we don't know, I mean, we, we, we do know a lot about him. We, we won't go into all the details, but one of the things is that 
you know, um, he was the one that completed the the building of the Colosseum. <laughs> and, you know, Vespasius had begun Titus, but then he had the vision to create this, this venue, if you will, that would become notorious for madness and cruelty and some things like that. And so this is when Revelation is written um, right in the beginning of the rule of the emperor Domitian. And, you know, we know one of the characteristics of the Roman Empire was its tendency, growing tendency towards the worship of empire or emperors. Um, the trend had actually begun way back with Caesar Augustus in the previous century, but now it was increasingly becoming stronger and more pronounced. And this was especially true in uh, the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And so you had these cities that were in fierce competition to curry Rome's favor. And the way that you curried Rome's favor was by being diligent in your worship of, of the Roman Empire and, and of the emperors themselves. And so, you know, I think as we look at Revelation, I mean, it's clear that there are two agendas that are at work here. There's the allegiance to King Jesus and there's allegiance to the emperor and uh, these are on a collision course. And these seven churches that John writes to are kind of right in the middle of all of this. And one of the things I think we have to get really clear about if we're going to understand ancient literature in general, that is the Bible setting, but apocalypses in particular is that empires in the ancient Near East were a definite mixture of religion and politics. Mm, in fact, yeah. they would not even understand our modern distinction between these two things. The gods had ordained which nations and empires would rise to power. So worship of the gods and political duty to the empire just went hand in hand. The rulers themselves were often thought to be divine or at least have some divine qualities. And it was during this time that we see the prominence of the imperial cult, a system that had temples and statues and priests dedicated solely to the worship of Caesar. So this is a huge thing in the Roman Empire. This meant that there was immense pressure on the empire's subjects to be completely loyal to the empire. In the case of Rome, it meant that the demand for allegiance combined with religious-type worship was expected of all citizens. It was all wrapped up into one thing. And like you just said, Paul, there was uh, posed a clear problem for followers of this Jewish king, Jewish Messiah, that declared that he was Lord. Um, and we mentioned this quote back in episode 45 about the gospel of Caesar. I'll just repeat it here real quick. This is what Rome said about Caesar. By filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending in him, as it were, a savior for us and for those who come after us to make war to cease, to create order everywhere, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the gospel that came to men through him. So pretty clear there, kind of the, uh, the framework that they had for thinking about their Caesars. And of course, this is what the early Christians said was actually the truth about Jesus, which, again, like you said, Paul, created some real t tension, kind of put the two opposing uh, worldviews on a collision course. And 
So these early Christians got in trouble. They got in trouble with the authorities and also likely with their neighbors. There wasn't indiscriminate killing of Christians as far as we know, but we do know that there was indeed persecution and even martyrdom in some places. And there was a Roman official named Pliny who wrote a letter soon after the time of the emperor Domitian describing how Christians were persecuted and then some renounced their faith under this intense pressure. So the danger was real. And this is why John writes at the beginning of the book that he's a companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. It was, it was pretty intense. Yeah. And so as we're reading apocalyptic literature like Revelation, I think if we keep in mind that at the end of the day, this was literature designed to give hope to the people of God. They're, they're clearly the underdogs in, in this situation. They have no army. They have no king. They have no treasury. And yet God is telling them through this unique literature that he's not abandoned them. He's urging them to remain faithful and singular in their allegiance to God. And yeah, there's visions of coming judgments and so forth, but more importantly, the bigger and the better vision of revelation is the absolute certainty of God's restoration and uh, the renewal of all things. You know, one, one more thing to mention, guys, too, before we look at this particular passage, is that this was not the only tension that the early church was facing. It wasn't just Rome. And in this uh, opening um, address to these seven churches, we see that there were other problems. It wasn't just the external you know, threat of Rome. There were internal threats to the church as well. And so some of them had followed religious pluralism. Uh, there were the temptations that came with great wealth and comfort. Uh, the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira were tolerating, you know, false teachers and misguided cults, ironically still called the church uh, in spite of all of this. And then the church of Laodicea, of course, is at ease with its riches and, and lukewarm in its faith. And doesn't even realize its own spiritual poverty. So, you know, it's like C.S. Lewis, I think, said the enemy never allows himself the luxury of only fighting on one front. It's Rome huh. and it's these internal struggles. Yeah, that's good. I think all of that, you know, fits with life in first century in the Roman Empire. Um, this emphasis on economic growth was a big deal. Religious tolerance, so long as the emperor is honored above everything else. Absolute loyalty to the empire, all of that fits this first century setting. So, in this context, John relays the visions he's seen of beasts and dragons and how they revealed the true character of Rome's arrogance and its pretensions of greatness. He writes to the churches about the judgments of God that are coming and the great victory of God that will follow. He tells them the truth about their time. And he gives them encouragement and hope. That's what apocalyptic literature is trying to do. So one thing we are definitely saying is that those interpretations of Revelation that are constantly scanning the latest geopolitical news headlines of our day and trying to match them to John's visions 
are seriously misguided. Um, it's the failure, really, to read this apocalyptic literature according to the intentions and conventions that the author himself had and followed. So do we read Revelation to find specific prophecies of new types of fighter jets or the effects of nuclear war? No, we don't. Because that is not what John was writing about the seven churches in Asia in the first century. We read Revelation to understand the deeper nature and patterns of empires and their typical rebellion against the creator. Because this helps us discern the kinds of temptations and pressures we face today. The world has changed, and yet the world has not changed. Yeah, that's good, Glenn. And I, I would say, on our behalf, maybe <laughs> you can tell me if I'm mm -hmm. wrong here. That feels like kind of the main takeaway of these couple of episodes is don't open Revelation on your table and put your newspaper next to it and try to find kind of the parallels there. It's not what that book is trying to do. And so anybody that claims to be kind of a modern prophet that's assigning some of these symbols to modern geopolitical events is, is off base, I would say. Yeah. And just to say one thing about that, it's, you know, I followed some of that and, and you can see, you know, as our time moves along, those um, supposed interpretations of those prophecies constantly change. So I remember when they were saying it was all about Gorbachev, mm -hmm. right, in Russia. And, and now nobody's saying that. They've moved on and they're constantly updating the interpretation of what they say it's about um, because our politics keeps moving on. So to me, and they never apologize and say, well, we were wrong about Gorbachev. <laughs> Right. It's just going on and, and applying it the same way to the new event. And I'm like, I wonder just if it ever occurs, like maybe that's not really what Revelation is trying to do. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. So in the previous episode, we, we looked closely at a specific passage in the book of Daniel. So now we're going to do the same thing with Revelation. And again, the idea is to give us an example of how this literature actually works. So Daniel's vision of the coming of one like a son of man was grounded in the ongoing story of God and his people, reassuring them that God will see them through their present crisis and vindicate them in the end. So today we're going to explore this vision report that John gives about a woman and a dragon, like Paul mentioned earlier. This is a new apocalypse for the people of God, for a new time and a new threat to people who worship and obey the creator and now also his son, Jesus. So here's the first part of the vision in Revelation. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1260 days. Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he is, and his angels were forced out of heaven. 
this great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. So what do we do with all this? Uh, did you throw that to me, Alex? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, for you, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we, we need to start with the understanding that apocalyptic literature is about our imaginations. And I think one of the mistakes that we make is that we read something, this really stunning account, if you will, of, of dragons, of Godzilla-like creatures, you know, foaming at the mouth and, and you know, bigger than life and arrows and spears aren't going to kill, kill them. I mean, this is we we should kind of be shocked by this before we try to start to interpret it. And so uh, this was clearly, this kind of literature was clearly designed to engage our imaginations. It's, it's storytelling. It's not straightforward, you know, didactic newspaper style. So apocalypses are, are working to get us to see the world dramatically in a new way. And they're telling us, don't just look at things uh, based on surface events. Look behind them. Look deeper. Look with your imagination. Be stunned. And then you'll have a chance to see the real story. And so, you know, in this vision, there's some key players. We'll get to them in just a moment. But notice again how the events taking place in heaven and earth are intertwined. Um, they're mutually affecting each other. There's another dimension where things are happening that we can't see, but it's clear that there's one coherent reality. There's God's realm and our realm, and and they're working together. Yeah, Paul, I think that's really good. And again, like we had said earlier, Glenn, Glenn, you had talked about how in the ancient world, politics and religion were intertwined, whereas nowadays we kind of separate those two things out. And Paul, you were saying here with this literature, the events in heaven in the kind of spiritual realm and the events on earth are intertwined, whereas we in our modern age tend to kind of separate those two things out. I think it's an important thing to realize that, especially as the apocalyptic literature portrays it, things on heaven impact earth, things on earth impact heaven. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. And I think that's an important point for understanding apocalyptic literature. So let's move into the details. And I think the best way to frame this as with pretty much all biblical literature is that we need to better understand John's vision by doing all that we can to enter John's world. So Glenn, why don't you take us there? Yeah, so let's talk about this vision in, in more detail. So the first two characters are a woman and a dragon. But notice the key symbols of authority, power, and glory that they both possess. Crowns, horns, celestial clothes. It's just as in Daniel's visions, these things represent real power and authority on earth. And then there's obviously, immediately we see conflict. Uh, clearly, given the cosmic nature of the symbols, like sun, moon, and stars, it means the stakes are high. It means that this is cosmic. This has to do with the whole world. Um, the giant red dragon, knowing its own power and place are going to be threatened, is waiting to devour that woman's child. So again, what you said, Alex, about entering John's world, 
This is a story whose outlines are well known in the ancient world. It actually matches the mythology in Greece about the dragon Python and the newborn son of Zeus. In Egypt, it would have been a red dragon named Set who pursues Isis only to be killed by her son Horus. Now in the new Roman world, as the, the world power of the time, the myth story was about the goddess Roma, mother of the godlike Caesars, sometimes represented on Roman coins by images of the sun and the moon. So the basic images and the shape of the story would have been familiar to John's audience. Like the cultures in the ancient Near East all had stories like this. The new thing here is the surprise of who is playing the various roles. Instead of Caesar being the hero, Caesar's going to turn out to be one of the beasts. So the woman represents the people of Israel's God who brought the Messiah into the world. Now you might say, well, why isn't that Mary? Well, that's thinking like non-apocalyptically. If you say it's just Mary, then the woman is Mary. That's uh, too literal. And I think we can see that it's not Mary because the woman continues to be pursued by the dragon after her son is born and is taken up to heaven. And so it seems to be a bigger symbol for the people of God um, that is working God's work into the world. So the dragon, which John helps us very clearly identify, that ancient serpent, he says, known as the devil or the Satan, tried to end the reigns of Israel's new king the moment he was born. We can see that story in the Gospels. Yet Jesus, crucified but then raised, struck the crucial blow against the dragon and has ascended to power in heaven. So the battle is won, and the dragon gets thrown out of the heavenly council, yet the war is not over. We couldn't read it all because of you know concerns about time here, but as the vision continues in John's revelation, the dragon will be joined by new allies in the struggle against the woman. Other beasts will arise, one from the earth, one from the chaos of the sea. The war will continue until the closing visions of the book. So the whole section you read, Alex, is clearly about the coming of the Messiah, a new king, a threat to the dragon, um, a crucial battle is won, and yet the war will continue. And that's something John's audience would have clearly been able to relate to. And Glenn, you know, as you're describing that, you know, the thought comes to me that um, this is an example that becoming stellar Bible readers is going to take some effort on our part. Yeah. This is not pablum. This is not laid out for us on some some lower shelf. And, you know, John leaves us some clues in this wild and weird story. Uh, but many of these images come from earlier scenes in the Bible. Um, the beasts, as you mentioned in Revelation, are familiar in their characteristics in Daniel's uh, apocalypse. And sometimes since many of us, you know, we, we get out our phones, we do a quick search, you know, on different phrases and so forth. And they, they jump out to us as being potentially significant. So, for example, you know, the repetition of sun, moon and stars in the text, it'll bring you back to the dream of Joseph way back in the book of Genesis where he has this vision of the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to him, representing his father and his mother and, you know, his 11 brothers. So Joseph was going to become a ruler on the world stage. That's what this is talking about. And oftentimes this imagery of the apocalyptic books comes, you know, from the source book 
of early, you know, earlier biblical stories. And the more we are familiar with the story, uh, the whole story, this is why we have to continue to be conversant and read the First Testament, the better we'll understand the ongoing story of, of the Bible. And, you know, in many ways, the call to be serious readers of the Bible is a call to be to be good journalists. Uh, I, again, though, the, the, the major point here in, in this vision is that although the, the nation of Israel and the early church, they're scattered, they're beleaguered Messiah communities, and they can't hold a candle you know, to Rome's massive beastly powers, in truth, they're still vital players in God's bigger cosmic work to reclaim the world. Uh, for himself, you know, the faithless and ongoing witness of Jesus' followers is as small as they were, just a small percentage of the people, you know, in the ancient world. Um, nonetheless, they are dramatic players in what's going on in heaven and on earth. And so the apocalypses tell us that what happens in heaven, it cascades down to the earth. But Alex, as you mentioned it, equally, the events and actions of, you know, followers of God here on earth, they affect the realities in the hidden realm of heaven. And so the Messiah is, is with his people in, in the struggle. You know, who's more helpless than a woman in labor, right? Um, and who's more terrifying than a carnivorous beast who has the upper hand and who has the power? And it's those kinds of questions that Revelation tells us that the answers are counterintuitive. And, you know, so what about us? Um, I think the same truth applies. We may not look like much, you know, throughout the world today, you know, church populations are dwindling um, in many countries, you know, under 1%. But we are apocalyptic players on a stage bigger than what? we we can see and we need to think of ourselves in those terms and uh we too need those apocalyptic books to uh unveil the truth of the world's story to us and uh and who we are in god's might yeah, that's right paul and i would say from just a few lines in one vision in revelation that's that's quite a bit to to unpack and kind of a, a wild ride just from a few short lines so we hope that you, our listeners, have enjoyed this introduction to the Bible's apocalyptic literature. As always, there's a lot to say and explore, a lot more than we've been able to do here on this show. But hopefully you've gained a sense of the basic dynamics of this somewhat strange, complex, definitely foreign ancient literature. There aren't many apocalypses in the Bible, but I think I said earlier, they're pretty potent. And their contribution to the story and to the overall message of scripture is significant and uh, also helpful for us today. So we need them now, maybe just as much as ever. Of course, these two episodes were meant to be, like I said, kind of a basic primer on apocalypse. But we certainly encourage you all to check out some commentaries on Daniel and Revelation and other resources that help unveil the original meanings behind some of this symbolism in the books. You know, it's not immediately relevant when you read that there's these ties to Zeus and Isis and 
all these other ancient mythologies, but, but there are scholars out there that have done the work to help us interpret and see some of these symbols. As we've said before, though, try to stay away from anything that tries to tie modern geopolitics to, to these um, apocalyptic books, because that's not what they're there to do. So we're going to go ahead and link to a couple of good resources in the show notes that, uh, that can maybe get you started there. As our series on the different kinds of literature continues, uh, next time we're going to take a look at the Bible's wisdom literature, which is another genre that we don't have a total equivalent to today. So that'll be fun to, to dive into those and see uh, what they have to say to us today. As always, the Bible Reset Podcast is brought to you by Changemakers, our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount to help us create resources that change the way people read the Bible. If you appreciate this podcast and you'd like to support our work, you can learn more at institutebiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.